The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the case for the Nazi saucers. I would be remiss to let the 75th anniversary of the Roswell event go by without touching on the UFO subject in some way, shape, or form. So tonight, we're going to have a go at uh, the case for Nazi saucers. Uh, What is involved with this, and what kind of evidence is there? for this thing, and uh, you might be surprised to find out that there's actually a, uh, a pretty good uh, line of succession for m- many of these technologies uh, in the field of uh, physics here that uh, are traceable back to human technologies, right? And it, this is one of those cases where uh, it's said, and it's been reported, and there is evidence that uh, the, the Nazis and you know, the Germans, uh, pre-World War II and into World War II, were developing saucer craft. Uh, So we're going to explore some of the evidence for this, and we're going to look uh, specifically to two different researchers here uh, to collate all of this information together. We're going to look primarily at uh, a book by a gentleman named Henry Stevens, uh, who was, uh, you know, one of the major names uh, back in the early days of ufology, Uh, who's studied many of these things. And we're also going to look at a book from David Hatcher Childress, um, who also put together some of the case evidence for many of these things and and, uh, put together the data from earlier researchers, from some of the people that uh, got a hold of this information. So what kind of information are we going to talk about here? So uh, we're going to actually highlight that. uh, And to do so... Uh, as far as the types of evidence being presented here, we're going to look in the book by Henry Stevens called Hitler's Flying Saucers, A Guide to German Flying Discs of the Second World War. And we're going to read about reliable sources. What sources did Henry Stevens uh, collate this data from? And much of uh, Henry Stevens' work uh, was also cited uh, by David Hatcher Childress in his book that we'll be exploring uh, some of these avenues of thought too. And there's other researchers that were directly involved in uncovering uh, much of this data uh, that these guys will actually reference. And so we're going to talk about uh, first here, what are these sources that uh, Henry Stevens cites here and David Hatcher Childress? What are these sources? So uh, let's read into uh, Henry Stevens' book here. And he talks about, in chapter 2 here, reliable sources. Much has recently been written concerning German flying discs. To the best of my knowledge, no single source has all the answers. To piece this puzzle together, information from various sources must be used. Of course, some sources are better than others. Categories of sources in a somewhat descending order of reliability are 
Number one, those actually involved with these projects. Number two, witnesses of flying saucers who had prior knowledge that the sighting was of a German saucer as opposed to an unidentified flying object. Number three, those who at the time had good reason to know of German saucers. Number four, third-party intelligence sources which verify claims made by the higher categories above. Number five, researchers who have interviewed principals involved in German saucer research. And number six, studies or scientific papers published by individuals identified as participants in these projects. Sources without names are not as good as sources with names, information, data, or pictures without a chain of evidence linking them to the event are not as good as those with proper documentation. After almost 60 years, nothing is going to be perfect. These categories are not meant to be absolute. Some sources fit into multiple categories. Some reports have value, even though they are not rigorous simply because they were later corroborated by other sources. When reading allegedly factual statements, the reader should always be looking for the source documentation for these statements. A writer's opinion or interpretation may be valuable, but it should always be made clear which is who. Examples of the first category are those who worked on German saucer projects. Uh, what we're going to explore here is there are absolutely, uh, historically, and this is well documented, there are German saucer projects that have been acknowledged, right? These really happened, and uh, some of these sources are going to be listed here. These are actual people who worked on some of these projects and have come forward with information, written books, putting out documentation, um, and uh, provided photographs of the craft in operation. Uh, so uh, this is not speculation, okay? Not purely. Now, some facets of... Uh, this research when you get to the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, some of the projects um, are not as easily historically provable as some of these other ones, but there still is a lot of evidence uh, that they did take place. Uh, so let's, let's read on here and see uh, as far as some of the sources here of this information who Henry Stevens is talking about. So let's continue reading. Among these is Rudolf Schreiber. Schreiber was involved in a German saucers project, which sometimes bears his name. As a source of information, he wrote an article on German saucers for the very respected Der Spiegel magazine. Likewise, Joseph Andreas Epp was a self-admitted consultant for both the Schriever-Habermal project at Prague and the Meath project in Dresden and Breslau. Mr. Epp wrote to me personally and I'm going to pause that this is Henry Stevens speaking, and has written several articles and a book about German saucers before he died in 1997. An example of a witness who had prior knowledge of German saucers would be George Klein. Klein was an engineer, an eyewitness to a saucer liftoff on February 14, 1945. He was also a special commissioner in the Ministry of Arms Production, who oversaw both the Schriever-Habermal and Meath-Beluzo projects for Albert Speer. Mr. Klein has written some newspaper articles about these facts, such as his article in Welt am Stantag titled... Uh, and I'm going to skip the German here because I don't want to butcher the German and I'll just uh, read the English translation here. And the name of the article was The First Flying Disc Flew in Prague in 1945. 
Other newspaper references of Mr. Klein will be mentioned. He has also written under the pen name of George Sautier. Another example would be the unnamed eyewitness provided by researcher Horst Schupman and first reported in Karl Heinz Zunick's book, uh, and I'm not going to say the German here, I'll translate again to English because I don't want to butcher the German, Secret Technology, Wonder Weapons, and the Terrestrial Facts of the UFO Phenomenon. In this report, the informant relates a wartime experience in which he witnessed several small flying saucers in a hangar. George Lusar is an example of a source falling under Category 3. Lusar worked for the German Patent Office during World War II. He saw many secret patents as they came into his office. After the war, he wrote a book and some articles concerning this technology, which was taken by the Allies. Likewise, Italian engineer Renato Vesco worked with Germans while at a secret division of Fiat housed in an underground facility on Lake Garda, right in the middle of the proposed Alpen, Alpenfestung. After the war, Vesco also researched British intelligence data. This data was voluminous. Of course, Vesco knew what to look for based upon what he had learned while working in a secret Axis underground facility. Vesco is an example of Category 3 and the next one, Category 4. Category 4 involves intelligence information obtained from government sources. This information mostly comes from the very entities who are trying to suppress this information. It should always be suspect. It should be used only to verify information obtained from higher sources, categories 1 through 3, or from governmental sources of another government. For instance, information concerning flying objects, which Renato Vesco called fireballs, was verified using information obtained from the U.S. government under laws forcing it to divulge some types of information, the Freedom of Information Act. Category 5 would include, for instance, Callum Coates, whom spent three years with mathematician and physicist Walter Schauberger, son of Victor Schauberger. Mr. Coates consequently learned a great deal of information concerning the ideas of Victor Schauberger. Mr. Coates is a scientist and architect. Coates wrote Living Energies about the ideas of Schauberger and his saucer models. In the same category, we find Michael X. Barton, who, through a translator, Carl F. Mayer, received information from an informant in German, Hermann Kloss, who claimed to have actually been involved with some of the German saucer projects. Kloss's peripheral knowledge, Category 3, also seems to have extended into other aspects of secret German research and technology. Barton wrote one of the earliest books on this topic, The German Saucer Story, in 1968. One unique source is Wilhelm Landig. Landig wrote three novels dealing with the Second World War. Following the title of each novel, Landig tells the reader that this is a novel based on realities. The reader is given to understand that the technology described was based on hard fact. Landig's works contain more than cold facts, however. Landig deals with a large variety of topics in his books. <coughs> Sometimes, facts or opinions are stated or stories behind the story are told. He writes unashamedly from the National Socialist perspective. Landig was obviously a Nazi and an intellectual insider. His history always remained unclear, at least to this writer, until his recent death. 
Because of his unclear background and the fact that he wrote in novel form, there has been a reluctance to ascribe full credibility to the statements he makes regarding the technology of the Third Reich. This all changed in 1999 as a result of research done by Margaret Chatwin with an organization called Information Service Against the Extreme Right. And it is going to pause for a second there, folks. And this is actually a translation from German. I guess this is a, a German uh, author uh, who wrote this, but that's what it translates to. Information Service Against the Extreme Right. <clears throat> Coming in from this perspective, they certainly would not be accused of aggrandizing Landig's career. Some details of Landig's biography are now filled in. In that article, we learn that Landig, an Austrian, took part in the unsuccessful Vienna Putsch of 1934. Thereafter, he fled to Germany and was inducted into the SD, the SS, and the Waffen-SS. There he rose to the rank of Oberschaffuhrer. Eventually, Landig was detailed to oversee government security concerns and given a position in the Reich's security department. Landig, in this position, was assigned to cover the security for the development of UFOs. It turns out that Landig was not only a source, but a great source concerning the development of German saucers. Turning to unnamed sources, they should never be given the weight as named sources are given. Many times writers use unnamed sources to advance a radically new and fantastic hypothesis in the UFO world. This type of source may sound convincing, given the secret nature of the message, but they should only be accepted if they yield new information which can be verified independently. This goes double for unnamed government sources. Government has a history of manipulation of information concerning UFOs and UFO origin theories. One of the most famous was the Majestic 12, or MJ-12, affair, which was based on unnamed government sources. This house of cards finally fell apart, but the real issue before us is why this house of cards, the MJ-12 affair, was ever allowed so much attention in the first place. Government information should, therefore, never be used as the primary basis for a UFO hypothesis. Going to repeat that sentence there, folks. Government information should therefore never be used as the primary basis for a UFO hypothesis. Nothing is truer than that statement. Uh, <laughs> so uh, why would you trust the government for disclosure of these things? Uh, obviously, they're compl complicit in covering up uh, many of these technologies, and they have reasons for doing that. So they're not going to be genuine with you, right? This is, they're disingenuous. Uh, so that is, that's a, a groundbreaking statement there by Henry Stevens, and boy, is he correct or what? Uh, let's, let's continue reading. It should only be used to verify a hypothesis developed, ideally, from multiple independent sources. Concerning German saucers, this means that information or ideas from government sources might be checked using similar assertions given by official records of two different countries. Uh, let's see. Okay, it should only be used to verify a hypothesis developed ideally from multiple independent sources. Concerning German saucers, this means that information or ideas from German sources might be checked using U.S. or British governmental archives, but not the reverse. Similar assertions given by official records of two different countries is notable. If both United States and British or German governmental sources agree upon something, 
then something might be said of the assertion. Of course, there are those that say this only points to a conspiracy between the two governments to conceal a deeper truth. This may be true in some cases. These are all really judgment calls, which the reader will have to make for himself in the end. Regarding individual sources cited, an effort will be made to describe the type of evidence each cited reference uses when the information is available. All right, folks. So, uh, going to pause there for a moment, just so we understand, these are the types of sources that are, are being referenced here, okay? Uh, there's a lot of corroboration on the part of many of these sources. Uh, so, when you have guys like Henry Stevens and uh, David Hatcher Childress uh, here uh, citing some of these other sources, these other people that have investigated this thoroughly, they're citing um, sources that, that have... Uh, a little more than just hearsay to back them up, okay? Like I said, there's been document dumps and stuff that have come out with this, and information has come out from, you know, people that were allegedly involved in this, that claim involvement in this, and were able to describe things that have been verified through other sources. And uh, there's been photographs leaked and all kinds of things like that. Uh, so, you know, when we see that going on, we could know that there's there's more to the story than just hearsay. Um, at any rate, we were discussing um, sources. Okay, so uh, Henry Stevens points out who exactly these sources are, right? Many of these sources. So uh, let's get into the meat of the matter here. And we're going to read from uh, David Hatcher Childress's book right now. And the title of this book is called Hanabu, The Secret Files, The Greatest UFO Secret of All Time, where this touches upon some of the different saucer projects, uh, some of the ones that, you know, aren't necessarily officially acknowledged, uh, but uh, there's a lot of evidence to back it up. So let's read into it here. The mystery of the saucers actually began before World War II, but it was during this war and shortly afterwards that the phenomena of flying saucers, flying boomerangs, flying cigar-shaped objects, and more began to flood the skies of the world. What on earth was going on? Were we being invaded from another planet? According to the press and mil the military, no one knew for sure. Were there really UFOs in the skies? In later years, various skeptics and skeptical societies promoted the view that there weren't really unexplained flying machines in the sky. It was just the overactive imaginations of people in the years after World War II. Yet, is this really a good explanation for a large part of the UFO phenomena? Certainly not. Evidence does exist that craft from other planets are visiting the Earth. Gonna pause there. Okay, really? <laughs> um, maybe, maybe not. But uh, that that's uh, David Hatcher Childress's opinion here uh, that he put in here. Uh, but uh, let's, let's continue on. I don't want to get hung up on that. I don't necessarily agree with him. I don't think there's enough evidence to show that, uh, you know, craft from other quote-unquote planets are visiting the Earth, right? Uh, we do see that uh, these craft exist and they've been spotted, and we don't know what they are. But there's no definitive way to prove his statement there. But uh, let's continue on and see what he says next. Ep evidence also exists that the Germans were designing and building disc-type craft during World War II and perhaps before. There is actually evidence, and we're going to get into some of that evidence here. 
so although uh, David Hatcher Childress uh, also believes that there's evidence that, uh, you know, craft from other planets are visiting here, um, you know, I, I don't see it the same way. I think the vast majority of what we see in the skies as physical nuts and bolts machines are actually man-made craft. Now, that's not to say that there's not other things going on up there in the sky. Uh, other unexplained phenomena that we see that can't be so easily explained away. Uh, there certainly is evidence of that, but we cannot prove definitively that these are quote-unquote aliens from another planet visiting us. There is a lot of evidence to correlate back to the whole Nazi saucer idea. So uh, let's let's read on here. A document dump of German flying saucers. Since about 1990, researchers in Europe, Australia, America, and elsewhere have received documents that show the designs of German flying saucers. A number of curious photos of the craft in flight and on the ground have also surfaced. They arrived via a curious document dump involving a German living in London named Ralph Ettel. Ralph Ettel then teamed up with another German named Norbert Jürgen Rathoffer, sometimes spelled a different way with a double T and sometimes only with one F, and sometimes with a hyphen between Jürgen and Rathoffer. The two released a book circa 1989 titled UFO, The Third Reich Strikes Back, with a question mark. Uh, and this is translated from German. I'm not going to butcher the German. <laughs> so uh, I'll do you folks the favor of not butchering the German here and just read the English translations. This book published photos and plans of the Hanabu, Vril, and Andromeda craft. They went on to author and publish a second book in 1992 entitled The Vril Project, The Final Battle for Earth. That same year, they also released a one-hour documentary film in German called UFO Secrets of the Third Reich. This film was released in Austria in 1992, but saw limited release. It was sold as a videotape, and it seems doubtful that it was ever shown on television in Austria, but may have been sold to television stations in other countries. These Hanabu and Vril documents were published again in 1996 in a German-language book called The Dark Side of the Moon by Brad Harris and published by Pandora Books in Germany. And I'm going to pause for a second there, folks. I've been looking for this book for a long time and I cannot find a copy of it translated to English. Uh, so um, or I, I have a very hard time even finding it in German, uh, for that matter. So... Uh, you know, uh, keep your eyes open for this. If you happen across this book or find it somewhere, uh, snatch it up and look for it because uh, it might be something important. But let's continue on. This German language book purported to be the translation of an English book supposedly published a few years earlier. However, no such English book ever existed, and it would seem that Brad Harris is just a fake name for some German author, perhaps Norbert Jürgen Rathoffer, the book contained a number of Hanabu and Vril documents, and I, uh, the author here, going to pause, uh, David Hatcher Childress, republished some of these illustrations in the updated version of my book, Man-Made UFOs. This was a clever way of bringing controversial documents out, in Germany no less, of the Hanabu and Vril craft that had been rumored for decades. 
Germany has strict laws concerning symbols and speech surrounding the Nazi era, and the swastika is banned from public use, including in magazines, books, and posters. Photos of the Hanabu or Vrilkraft do not have swastikas on them, allowing them to be viewed in Germany. When they have a symbol on them, it is the German cross. It was later said that the Hanabu and Vrilkraft had the Black Sun logo on them instead of the German cross. Austria does not have the same laws forbidding discussion or images of the Nazis, and this is the reason that the film A UFO, The Third Reich, was released in Austria and not Germany. This movie can be found on the IMDb website, where we learn that the English-language version called UFO Secrets of the Third Reich was released in Austria in 1998. The brief description says, What did the Germans and Hitler know about the universe and UFOs? This documentary unravels some of the mysterious knowledge that was present during the Third Reich. We are told that the two writers are Jürgen Rathoffer of the screenplay and Ralph Edel. We are also told that the documentary features Ernst Harmenstein, Wolfgang Pompel, Eugen Lardy, and a number of others. So clearly, Norbert Jürgen Rathhofer and Ralph Ettel are behind the release of most of the Hanabu and Vril documents, but are they trustworthy? Who is behind this document dump? An English version of this documentary, released in Austria in 1996, had a narrator at the beginning announce that the material had come from the Austrian branch of the Knights Templar. Some have claimed that the material came from the Austrian branch of the Vril Society. Gonna pause there, folks. The Austrian branch of the Knights Templar. (coughs) Who would that be? Hmm? The Austrian branch of the Knights Templar. Well, the Knights Templar are a sub-organization of many of the secret society groups. Uh, They're most commonly associated with the Freemasons, uh, but the Austrian branch thereof might rightfully be called the Illuminati, (laughs) right? Uh, If you want to get down to it, especially if they're saying this is a branch of the Vril Society, and all these different secret societies kind of overlap at different levels. Uh, So, you know, the Vril Society uh, was a... uh, secret society that operated within Nazi Germany during World War II and before, uh, actually going back prior to World War II. Uh, So this was one of the major secret societies that held sway in seeking out the esoteric information associated a lot of the way with uh, some of these uh, exotic type uh, aircraft, so to say, these, this saucer technology. So uh, with that being the case, uh, you know, a lot of times they're credited with being the uh, organization that held a lot of this knowledge uh, and a lot of these these different patents and uh, different types of technology in its grasp. So let, let's read on, though. The American with the most knowledge of these documents is Henry Stevens. Going to pause there. That's the gentleman we were just citing from who listed off the different sources of information that a lot of this stuff came from. A Californian researcher who has been studying the field of German flying discs and other secret technology for decades. Stevens has been in contact with several German researchers on this subject and is the author of a number of books including Hitler's Flying Saucers, the one we just quoted from. In private correspondence, Stevens told me, I was suspicious of the Edel dump for years. I still am. It is just a little too good. 
What made me reappraise my position was the late Heiner Gehring, who was a straight-up no-BS guy. As I mentioned, he visited Landig, a former SS officer and author of fictional books on German saucers and secret bases, just before Landig died and was shown Landig's files. Evidently, there was a lot of a lot Landig did not tell us in his novels. Heiner came away talking about the Vril and Hanabu saucers as if they were real. Then there is the Field Propulsion Saucer FBI report, the Gut-Alt-Glossen report. In my first book, Hitler's Flying Saucers, which fits the bill exactly, and I'm going to pause there, folks. Yes, there are FBI and CIA documents and other military intelligence organization documents verifying that there were secret saucer programs going on in Germany and some of the details thereof, as is pointed out here uh, by Henry Stevens in this letter to David Hatcher Childress. Let's continue on, because we're reading here, this is the letter from uh, Henry Stevens to David Hatcher Childress regarding this. I do not know that Heiner believed all of the Tempelhof-Gelschrift lore about the Hanabus, the mediums, the flight, the fight to other worlds, etc. I never doubt he believed this, and I certainly do not believe this. Nevertheless, he reported some of it, probably based on what he found with Landig. I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So what Henry Stevens is saying is there's a lot of uh, lore that goes along with this, right? About uh, these Hanabu craft and Vril craft that uh, supposedly were developed. And that they flew to other worlds. Well, Henry Stevens doesn't believe that that happened. But, nevertheless, he believes that these craft were very real. Right? So let's continue on. Heiner was my source as to the Edel dump. He explained to me, in themselves, Edel and Rathover are not credible sources in my eyes. Rathover was a security guard or janitor who claimed membership in this secret society. Edel was a filmmaker and wannabe big-time producer. Let me give you an example. Edel's production movie company filed bankruptcy in Germany. This is a very big deal in Germany. But Edel still wanted to make money on the films belonging to the company and had the master tapes. He sold the right to copy them to a guy in New Zealand or Australia. I found out about this, realized it is probably illegal, but my friend at the time, Wolf Leithart, a German living near me, wanted the rights too. They got together and for $500, he bought the rights to UFO's Secrets of the Third Reich. But not the exclusive rights. So Edel was going around the world selling rights to this film that he made, but technically was part of a bankruptcy. And to this, Edel and Rathover had some sort of interest in a post-production company in Austria, one which could do digital images. We called that company and the one at the one time, sorry, we called that company at the time, and when the name of the first film or the names of Edel and Rathover were mentioned, people could not run away fast enough. Bulgarian-American researcher Vladimir Terziski was given a couple pictures of a Hanabu in negative form. Going to pause there, folks. This is important. Okay, Vladimir Terziski was given negatives of photos of these Hanabu craft. Okay, so... This is um, a, a very important piece of evidence for these uh, devices existing. Let's read on. This had great credibility in my mind, since I do not recall anyone faking a negative. I think these pictures were in my first book, Hitler's Flying Saucers. Uh, 
Vladimir visited both these guys with the Japanese UFO film crew. Vladimir went to college in Japan and spoke Japanese, but neither Edel or Rathover spoke English, so they found a local guy to translate to English for the visit. It was Jean Van Helsing, the conspiracy writer, a.k.a. Udo Holi. About this time, I began to turn more and more to the people researching the Jonas Valley as better sources in Germany, as well as Friedrich George. These guys did not deny the Hanabu thing, but like me, tried to keep it at arm's distance. The only one who accepted the Hanabu narrative wholly was Dr. Axel Stoll, a geophysicist. I still do not know for sure anything about the whole Edel Rathover Hanabu thing. And gonna that's the end of the first letter, and then in a second letter, uh, Henry Stevens says to uh, David Hatcher Childress, I forgot two things. Number one, Vesco's Kugelblitz ball lightning was a reference to the plasma nature of the Hanabu engine. I never made this point, but I should have done so. And number two, Michael X. Barton's German saucer story contained a description of the Hanabu. He listed several, maybe eight or so, wonder weapons. One he called it the magnetic bottle, or the flying magnetic bottle. This was some sort of flying craft which sounds very Hanabu-like. So, let's continue on here. Now back to uh, what uh, David Hatcher Childress says here. He says, So, Henry Stevens believes that the documents concerning the Hanabu, Vril, and Andromeda craft are authentic, though questions remain as to their origins. He doesn't think much of the men who released them. He mentions the Field Propulsion Saucer FBI report, which he calls the Gut-Alt-Glossen report, as something that convinced him that the Hanabu saucer had been built and used during the war and after. The Gut-Alt-Glossen report was actually two FBI reports from November 7th and 8th, 1957. It is from these reports, from the Freedom of Information Act, that reports of Hanabu craft in action can be learned. The recently released CIA reports are another. The FBI reports said that a witness saw a craft identical to a Hanabu at the German town of Gutalt-Golsen. Says Stevens, quote, The files in question are Gutalt-Golsen file numbers, and it lists off the file numbers, folks. I'm not going to read them because it's very long numbers. Their date is 11757 to 11857. They deal with a Polish immigrant, then living in the United States, who reported his wartime experience to the borough, hoping it might throw some light on UFO sightings seen in Texas about this time. And I'm going to pause there, folks. <coughs> These are, this is a famous report. Okay, this this Texas report. These are uh, the, the lights over uh, Texas there. Uh, so, but let's read on. The time of the sighting was in 1990, or sorry, 1944. The place was Gutalt-Golsen, approximately 30 miles east of Berlin. The informant, whose name has been deleted, states that while he was a prisoner of war working for the Germans, a flying object arose nearby from behind an enclosure hidden from view by a 50-foot-high tarpaulin-type wall. It rose about 500 feet, then moved away horizontally. The only noise the object made was a high-pitched whine. The object was described as being 75 to 100 feet in diameter and 14 feet high. It was composed of a dark gray stationary top and bottom sections 5 to 6 feet high, 
with a rapidly moving center section producing only a blur and extending the circumference of the vehicle. Notably, the engine of their farm tractor stalled during the event and the SS guards told the driver not to attempt a restart until the whine could no longer be heard. Because of what I believe is their importance, these files have been reproduced here. One of the most compelling reasons for taking this report so seriously is that the government of the United States of America took this report so seriously. It is hard to believe that an agency such as the FBI would take and retain reports of flying saucers which had no special meaning for them. Add to this the fact that this report was over 10 years old at the time it was taken and that it concerns a report originating in another country. The FBI operates within the USA and usually does not concern itself with foreign matters unless they have meaning for the internal security of the United States. Could the reason that this report was taken and retained for so many years be that it did, in fact, have meaning for the internal security of the United States? Did it have something to do with the flying saucers seen over Texas at the time, which also stopped motor vehicles? <coughs> and then uh, David Hatcher Childress has reproductions, uh, photocopies, uh, pictures of these documents shown here in his book. Uh, so... And uh, these these could be looked up online. You could actually read the the reports yourself. They're are out there. They could be found. As an alternative to the security issues, could there have been another reason that the FBI was so interested in flying saucers? Did the FBI desperately want information on UFOs, which was held by the military and other branches of the intelligence community, which was not shared with the FBI? It has been rumored that J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI at the time, was very interested in learning these secrets, but was held out of the loop. It could be that the FBI was already aware of German saucers through security clearances done on German scientists coming to the USA under Operation Paperclip. The ego of J. Edgar Hoover may have been a factor in the borough's quest to learn more on this subject. Hoover may have wanted to be on equal footing with other intelligence chiefs. For whatever reason, something in these reports resonated with the FBI. The report was taken seriously, investigated, and kept. This fact alone speaks volumes for the existence of UFOs in general and German saucers in particular. So, what can we learn here? Well, obviously there are reports that uh, back up some of these claims about these craft, right? that they exist. Uh, there were certainly different uh, German saucer programs going on. Uh, like, many of them are, are acknowledged, right? Uh, there's, there's an actual record. Uh, the, the Meath and the Schriever discs, as they're called, are, are well recorded. Uh, it's a well-known commodity that Schauberger developed a, what he called a repulsing vortex engine uh, that was allegedly used for some of these craft. Uh, there's also the famous case of the Nazi bell, Die Glocke, uh, which is said to have been a levitation engine of sorts developed by the Nazis uh, for, you know, many of these craft. So with that being said, I mean, what, what do we know about some of these craft? Now, there's all kinds of documents that show blueprints for these and different design details that have also been uncovered in some of these files. And uh, to get to some of them, you have to go uh, to other sources, outside sources, to find some more of this information. So we're going to move down here 
to a portion called the Hanabu Secret Files. <coughs> the Hanabu Secret Files. Henry Stevens says a Hanabu craft is a large-sized flying saucer, at least 30 feet or so in diameter, with a classic dome on its upper side and without in any indication of rotating discs, wheels, or parts. It is thought to make a whining sound when starting up, as indicated in the FBI documents described above. Because the craft is electric, there is a glow about it, and at night, the craft may be brightly lit. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Now, many of these characteristics are uh, backed up other places. And uh, if you go back, uh, you know, a couple months ago, I did a uh, an episode here where I explored Project Winter Haven, developed by uh, Dr. T. Townsend Brown. Uh, that has many of these same characteristics that uh, these electrical type technologies were what were used for propulsion for a type of craft like this a disc-shaped craft uh, which brown had developed uh, and this is this is you know very much well recorded uh, within the naval department and uh, the development of these craft these different uh, types of electrogravitic craft as they were called went deep black in 1958 uh, with the advent of NASA. Uh, so with this being the case, many of these projects went deep underground and were not discussed in public view ever again uh, from that time forward. And still to this day uh, are very heavily covered up. Now we do see stories of minor leaks coming out from places like Lockheed Skunk Works from uh, you know, gentlemen like Ben Rich, uh, who has now passed away. He was a former head of uh, Lockheed Skunk Works. Also, uh, there was a gentleman named Boyd Bushman that came out with a lot of information from there. Uh, the authenticity of some of this information, I don't know. You have to question some of it. Uh, but it seems to me that there there is a type of physics that's understood at Lockheed Skunk Works and other places that develop aircraft that is not understood elsewhere. Right. This this harkens back to the whole idea of ether physics and various models of physics that don't uh, necessarily, uh, you know, stand out in our modern era because we've been taught other ways of thinking. Right. But uh, in the uh, auspices of these special access programs, they understand a different type of physics that really, truly works here. And a lot of it has to do with electricity and magnetism. Uh, and things of this nature. So that being the case, it would seem that uh, this this fills the, the bill here. Uh, the way that these Nazi craft are described, these Hanabu craft or Vril craft. Now, like I said, there were other saucers that were being developed in uh, Germany. And uh, these are uh, called the Schriever Habermal craft. And uh, the other one is... Uh, the Meath Beluso craft, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and, and these were developed uh, as a combined operation between Germany and Italy, right? Uh, the Axis powers, uh, the Beluso discs. Uh, but uh, the, these discs were developed, and these were made by, you know, with more standard uh, type aerodynamic technologies, uh, rather than, you know, these, these exotic technologies. Now, the, the Hanabu and Vril craft, and uh, they, they also describe one called an Andromeda craft, which is a large cylindrical-shaped craft, uh, which would be like a mothership type thing uh, that they have d designs for, blueprints and stuff for, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, have been seen within some of these different files. 
Now, these are the ones that operate on a more exotic type propulsion system, uh, allegedly here, right? We can't outright prove all of this, but uh, we do have leaked photographs and uh, blueprints and, and different uh, design specifications and patents and things like that that have come out. And uh, they describe, uh, you know, some of the way that this works. Now, let's get back to uh, the reading here. It would seem that what is starting up are mercury plasma gyros, which are electrified and create a whirling gyroscopic tornado of energy inside sealed globes or spheres. These spheres are indicated in the Hanabu diagrams, as we shall see. The plasma gyros make a whining sound when they first start up, and the electromagnetic field that they generate interferes with other electrical devices in the vicinity, including car and aircraft motors. Indeed, this was essentially what the mysterious Foo Fighters did in the last days of the World War. They interfered with electrical systems of the bombers and forced them to turn back to England. And I'm going to pause there, folks. This is well documented as well, right? Uh, so, you know, what they're saying here, there's there's merit to it. Let's read on. <coughs> the files and photos describe two types of flying saucer, the Vril, a small two-man craft, and the Hanabu, a larger saucer-shaped craft that had seats for nine people. A third type of craft is shown, the classic cigar-shaped mothership called the Andromeda. This craft could allegedly hold one Hanabu 2 craft and four of the smaller Vril craft. These projects were supposedly under the supervision of the Vril Gesellschaft and the SSE-4, a secret development center for alternative energy of the SS. And as such, they were not directly under Hitler's and the Nazi Party's orders and were not really planned for war use. But later, when Germany's situation deteriorated, the SS began to think about using the flying discs in the war. They were originally scout craft. Later, they were used for other purposes. Supposedly, the Vril and Hanabu craft had these statistics. Gonna pause here, folks. (coughs) So none of this is really verifiable, right? But listen to the descriptions of these craft. And we see... Actually, photographs, I mean, if you're, you're watching this, you could see uh, as the slideshow I'm presenting, a lot of these are the actual leaked photographs and documentation of the existence of these craft. Uh, so take a look at them and listen to the descriptions given. So, supposedly, the Vril and Hanabu craft had these statistics. The Vril 1, and this is from September 1944, had a diameter of 11.5 meters, Its drive system, or its uh, engine, was the Schumann Levitator, an anti-gravitation equipment of sorts. The Sturrung Steering, it was a magfield impulsor. Velocity, it could travel 2,900 to 12,000 kilometers per hour. Capacity, 5.5 hours in the air. The Hanabu 1 from December 1944, diameter 25 meters. The drive is called a a Thule Tachyonator 7B, another anti-gravitation equipment. Uh, So they're claiming that these these different types of anti-gravitic engines or electrogravitic engines existed, that the Nazis developed several different types of these. Okay, the steering mechanism is a magfield impulsor. The velocity of this one was 4,800 to 17,000 kilometers per hour. Its capacity was 18 hours in the air, and its crew 
was eight people. The Hanabu 2 from 1943 to 1944. Diameter 26.3 meters. The drive, or the engine in it. A Thule Tachyonator 7B anti-gravitation equipment. The steering was a Magfield Impulsor. Velocity 6,000 to 21,000 kilometers per hour. Capacity 55 hours in the air. And crew 9 people. Hanabu 3 from sometime in 1945. The diameter is said to be 71 meters. Its drive is a Thule Tachyonator 7B and Schumann Levitators, uh, both of those being anti-gravitation equipment. The steering mechanism is a Magfield Impulsor. Its velocity could travel 7,000 to 40,000 kilometers per hour. Its capacity, it could spend eight weeks in the air. Crew, 32 people. It is interesting to note in the statistics for the Hanabu that the real craft could be in the air for five and a half hours, while the Hanabu 1 could be in the air for 18 hours. The Hanabu 2 could be in the air for 55 hours, and the Hanabu 3 could be in the air for an astonishing eight weeks. Clearly, the Hanabu craft needed toilet facilities on them, but the real craft had no toilet or other facilities. It was apparently noted in some crashed UFOs that there were no toilet facilities of any kind, which indicated to early military researchers that these were not long-haul craft meant for long missions. Still, the amazing speed of the real craft would allow it to go long distances even in the relatively short time that it could fly. And then there's diagrams here in the book of the different various real craft and Hanabu craft. As in all clandestine programs, the names of the devices or craft were ultimately secret and the odd name Hanabu would have originally been a code word. So, what is the meaning of the code word of Hanabu? Uh, and this is coming from David Hatcher Childress, because he actually explored this idea, and I, I give props to him for exploring the origins of the word Hanabu, right? This is a very important thing. So let's read what he found. I found it very difficult to find out what this word meant. Unlike the term vril, no explanation of the word Hanabu is given in any of the literature that can be found on the subject. As with many code names, German code names did not necessarily have anything to do with the actual mission, device, or operation itself. This may have may be the case with the word Hanabu. It may have some arcane meaning that only a few of the inner circle of the Vril Society would know. In looking it up on various dictionaries on the internet, one lead seemed to show that it was a type of hair color. However, the best definition that I was able to find was from awiktionary.org. Hanabu, plural Hanabus, Hanabu, Egyptology, plural Hanabu, a member of a people from the Aegean Sea. Any class of, of a class of flying saucers supposedly built by the Nazis. So Hanabu, originally here, according to etymological sources, comes from a description from Egyptology of members of people from the Aegean Sea. So let's read on here. <coughs> So does the meaning behind the code word Hanabu refer to the original Greek raiders known to the Egyptians as the Sea Peoples who fought against Egypt circa 1200 BC and were ultimately repelled? These Sea Peoples were depicted as having horned helmets like Vikings, and they overwhelmed coastal Egypt for a period until they were defeated. These people essentially settled in the eastern Mediterranean in what is today Lebanon, Turkey, and Greece. These people were apparently the Hanabu. 
It has been suspected that the Sea Peoples were from Germany and Scandinavia, and this could fit in with the SS's penchant for using esoteric and raider-type names such as Vril, Werewolf, Death's Head, Stormtrooper, and so on. The SS Death's Head rings, such as the one Himmler wore, are now valuable collector's items and were worn by most of the U-boat officers and other commanders. Another explanation is that Hanabu is a shortened form of Hanaburg. Hanaburg was supposedly the secret facility used by the SS to develop the Vril and Hanabu craft. According to the curious website, the Zervenclub.com, the original name of the craft was the Hanaburg Gerat, or Hanaburg device. It was later shortened to Hanabu, or H. Gerat, says the site. So I'm going to pause there. So there's also uh, some of these uh, sites that are operated ostensibly by secret society groups uh, who are claiming other things about these names. Uh, so we don't really know, right, where the name came from. Was this developed in a place called Hanaburg? And that's what Hanabu is short for. It's hard to say. I, I personally think it's more likely that the esoteric meaning that uh, David Hatcher Childress came across, uh, the Aegean people uh, from the Egyptologist uh, perspective, is probably a more correct rendering, right? Uh, th this is the kind of stuff that uh, many of these uh, governments and, and you know various secret society groups, they take a lot of this stuff seriously and they, they put major importance on naming things. Uh, so with that being the case, I think that's probably a more correct rendering of uh, what this is and where it came from. So, uh, you know, with that being said, who knows? Who knows for sure? But according to this site that he's uh, citing from now, uh, what's the name of it here again? Let me find it. Zervanclub.com. Z-U-R-V-A-N-C-L-U-B.com. Now, this this website claims that, quote, Since 1935, the Thule Society had been scouting for a remote, inconspicuous, underdeveloped testing ground for their craft. Thule found a location in northwest Germany that was known as, or possibly designated as, Honneberg. At the establishment of this testing ground and facilities, the SSE-4 unit simply referred to them as the h Gerat, the Honneberg device. For wartime security reasons, the name was shortened to Hanabu. In 1939, it was briefly designated as RFZ-5, along with Vril's machines, once the Hanaburg site was abandoned in favor of a more suitable Vril Arado Brandenburg aircraft testing grounds. So I'm going to pause there. So according to this website, which is ostensibly run by people uh, within either the Thule and or Vril societies or the existing members uh, in, you know, associated uh, secret society groups today, that this is the information that they claim, okay? So this is what they're claiming, and there could be some truth to it, or it could be total nonsense. Uh, I don't know, but uh, David Hatcher Childress here is quoting from this website to try to shed a little light on where the name Hanabu comes from and why it's important. Uh, so, like I said, I would suspect probably his first... Uh, venture down, uh, you know, the etymological timeline here is probably a more apt um, description for how it got its name. But uh, let's hear, listen to what this, you know, secret society group that operates this Zervan Club website says. 
<coughs> so this seems to be the origin of the name Hanabu. It is named after the facility it was designed in. The SS often used occult-type names and symbols for their ships and aircraft. Vril, Atlantis, Andromeda, Werewolf, and the Skull and Crossbones. A typical Masonic symbol first used by the Knights Templar when their fleet was outlawed by the Vatican. But with the Hanabu, we have a curious and mundane name for what was one of the most top-secret projects during World War II. And the super-secret nature of the craft meant that it had no name. Only the code name H. Gerot, which was used in any communications. Ultimately, plans for the craft had to give the flying saucer a name, and thus it became Hanabu. I must admit, this seems to be a correct origin for the word. But we still do not know where this Hanaburg was located, except that it was supposedly in northwest Germany. There is no town or area called Hanaburg that I am able to find. Apparently, this was a secret manufacturing site properly probably in a rural forested area. A prehistoric hill fort called the Huneberg is located by the river Danube in Hundersingen near Herbertingen in the south of Germany, close to modern borders with Switzerland and Austria. It is considered to be one of the most important early Celtic centers in Central Europe. It is a fortified citadel, and there are extensive remains of settlements and burial areas spanning several centuries. Though it has a similar name, it does not seem that Hunneberg is the location for the facility creating the Hanabu. However, Maybe this facility, wherever it was, took its name from this ancient site. Okay, folks. So, we see here an interesting bit of history. Okay? Now, uh, there's evidence to support that these flying disks did exist as far as their performance potential and the technologies that uh, were utilized in making them. We could only speculate as to how this works because we don't really have access to the technical designs, but we could know some things by some people who put some serious time into research of these things. Um, Igor Witkowski being one of them, uh, he heavily uh, researched the whole Nazi Bell project, and many of the things that uh, he had come up with pertaining to this Bell project are being reflected here in the different Hanabu stories, right? The whole idea of a mercury plasma uh, being rotated to create an electrogravitic effect. This is something that's, that kind of uh, crosses over between these two ideas. Uh, now, many people have speculated that this Nazi Bell device uh, was the actual engine, like the propulsion engine. Uh, maybe this was one of these levitators, right? These, uh, what do they call them, Schumann levitators? Or uh, one of these other devices. Maybe that's what that was. Maybe it was a prototype of one of these devices. And maybe it's been developed further since then. It's hard to say, right? And uh, we also see how, uh, you know, the Nazis really uh, tried to... Uh, collect all of the ancient uh, data that they could, all the ancient artifacts and uh, records of various cultures that talked about similar things. Uh, like we, we've heard the stories of the Vimanas in India. It's the same type thing. And there, you know, there's speculation that uh, this is where they got the idea for the rotating mercury plasma uh, to create some type of an anti-gravitic effect. Uh, so that being the case, you know, is this true? Now, we can't say with 100% certainty that it's true, but we can see that uh, we have pictures, we have blueprints, we have 
uh, specs and we have patents and stuff all relating to many of these different types of ideas uh, a lot of them deriving from german sources so you know where did this information come from where did these pictures and stuff come from uh you know the the sources that were pushing them forward uh they don't seem to be you know genuine in in what they wanted to do with this but I don't think they were the official first source of this, especially since there's a lot of uh, corroborating information that's come out from intelligence agencies and from uh, government document dumps and stuff like that, too, that back up some of these ideas. So coming at it from multiple sources, there seems to be a, a core of truth to some of the ideas that perhaps the Germans had developed some type of a, a saucer craft, right? And we could see there were actual saucer craft prototypes that they had built that are historically documented that have been uh, uh, shown in the past that used you know technologies that we are familiar with uh, you know more things that we're familiar with conventional technologies that we have but uh, this is something more exotic okay so this would be something that would be very heavily classified within military intelligence, I would say. And they're actually saying that uh, the Nazi party themselves didn't have control of this, that this was a separate secret group, uh, probably the Thule Society or Vril Society, that were developing these things using government monies and funding from the, the Nazis and the SS and the various uh, research arms of uh, the German government at the time. So this is kind of similar to what goes on today, right? We have uh, corporations, private corporations, private interest groups that develop these technologies for the government using government funding. And they tuck away these records far from the public scrutiny within secret access programs or special access programs uh, within the black budget community. This is something that uh, looks like it was going on in Germany, too, except this was uh, promulgated through different groups like the Thule Society and the Vril Society. Uh, and they were developing these craft in secret outside of the uh, auspices of government uh, oversight, so to say. The government provided the funding and, uh, you know, left them go ahead and do this. And they had very little say. And it looks like they, they did the compartmentalization thing as has been done today. So people within the different, uh, you know, uh, orders of the different... Uh, say, uh, departments or branches of government within the Nazi party were probably largely unaware of some of these programs, with the exception of possibly uh, some of the ones within, uh, you know, the SS or the uh, the Waffen, SS Waffen groups, the different militaristic arm of, of this that were closely following these technologies. So uh, that being the case, we see similar things go on today. We know that there's secret technologies out there that aren't being disclosed to the public right now. So the same thing could have been going on here, right? But let's let's continue on here and read a little bit more. <coughs> Here's where the rubber meets the road here and where it starts to get interesting. An armed flying gyro. Supposedly, the Hanabu was an armed flying gyro that was first tested in 1939. Some websites claim that working models of the Hanabu were already being built by 1942. 
according to the Vril websites on the internet that promote the mysterious Maria Orsic and her contact with the planet Aldebaran, we have this curious timeline that includes mention of Operation Paperclip and the secret Antarctica base in New Schwabenland, sometimes called Point to Eleven. Gonna pause right there, folks. So if you're not familiar with uh, some of this... Uh, real type mythology so to say there was a a a woman uh during world war ii uh during this time frame in the 1930s who was very important to the real society her name was maria orsic she was said to be a prophetess of sorts a messenger Uh, she allegedly was able to communicate with extra terrestrial intelligences and was was a type of psychic or a seer of sorts and uh, she was heavily involved with this real society and was said to get uh, input from uh, these quote-unquote aliens uh, that uh, gave them the secrets to developing some of these technologies. This is what's alleged, and if you're not familiar with the mythology of this, uh, this is who this person was. Her name was Maria Orsic. Uh, you could find pictures of her, photos of her. She's got had very, very long hair, and this was a very important thing. And you, you see how all this ties back once again to the occult and the esoteric. Uh, and that's uh, largely what a lot of it was about within the real society. So uh, they claim to have gotten uh, in, you know, the inspiration for these technologies through those contact points from uh, this this important individual, and her and others as well. But she was one of the most uh, well documented ones of these people within the real society that's largely regarded here. But uh, let's continue reading here, and we see how uh, he mentions about. Uh, her contact with the planet Aldebaran, uh, and uh, he also mentions Operation Paperclip, right? So the Vril Society was aware of Operation Paperclip, and they were probably heavily part of that as well, being a secret society group, uh, well-connected internationally, I'm sure. Uh, so, and we also see the legend of the Antarctic base uh, that was set up by the Nazis, which there might be something too, let's be honest. But let's read on. In August 1939, the first RFZ-5, which would be the Hanabu, took off. It was an armed flying gyro with the odd name Hanabu-1. It was 25 meters across and carried a crew of eight. At first, it reached a speed of 4,800 kilometers per hour, later up to 17,000 kilometers per hour. It was equipped with two 6-centimeter KSK ray guns in revolving towers and four machine guns. It had a 60% space capability. By the end of 1942, the Hanabu-2 was ready. The diameters varied from 26 to 32 meters and their height from 9 to 11 meters. They carried between 9 and 20 people, had a Thule tachyonator drive, and near the ground reached a speed of 6,000 kilometers per hour. It could fly in space and had a range of 55 flying hours. At this time, there existed already plans for a large capacity craft, the Vril 7, with a diameter of 120 meters. A short while later, the Hanabu 3, the showpiece of all discs, was ready with 71 meters across. It was filmed flying. It could transport 32 men, could remain airborne for eight weeks, and reached at least 7,000 kilometers per hour, according to documents in the secret SS archives, up to 40,000 kilometers per hour. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Remember, this information is coming from this website that uh, is allegedly 
put out by the Vril Society or the Thule Society that this is, you know, one of the things they claim, right? So even though there's evidence that uh, these craft existed, there's no evidence that they flied in space or were capable of flying in space, as is said here. There's, you know, certainly no evidence that they traveled at these high speeds. Although, is it possible? Well, sure it is. Do I know the truth? No. I, I don't know any more than anybody else. And many of these people have spent countless hours researching this. And this is the information that they've found. And uh, there are some correlating evidences to back up some of the claims. So I, I don't think, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater is a good idea here. Uh, I definitely see a uh, line of development uh, that has moved forward from the time of Tesla and some of the things that uh, Tesla has discussed. Um, so, you know, you, you could see uh, maybe there's something to uh, the way that these things operate. Now, does that mean that uh, we could 100% know for certain that these these uh, tachyonator drives that they speak of or these... Uh, uh, you know, uh, different devices, these anti-gravitic devices really truly exist and were built and developed and have probably since been, you know, perfected since then. It's hard to say for sure. I, I do think there's something to the idea that it, it could potentially work, especially if you, uh, you know, accept a model of physics that's different than what we're taught in the mainstream here. Uh, which, you know, the mainstream physicists still haven't figured out a unified theory, and they never will, going down the, you know, the lines of thought that they go now. It's all about uh, plugging in advanced mathematics just to make things mesh together in ways that they normally don't uh, by introducing, you know, constants and things like that into their equations and making it work mathematically, but it doesn't actually work in reality, right? It doesn't work through experimentation. This is the opposite of science, of true science. Okay, it's mathematics. That's largely what scientists today do. They do math. <laughs> That's what a scientist is. It's a mathematician. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> let's continue reading here and see what else uh, that uh, these people could, uh, you know, illuminate us on with some of these different ideas. At the beginning of 1943, it was planned to build in the Zeppelin works a cigar-shaped mothership. The Andromeda device of a length of 139 meters should transport several saucer-shaped craft in its body for flights of long duration, and it says in parentheses, interstellar flights. By Christmas 1943, an important meeting of the Vril Gelleschaft took place at the seaside resort of Kohlberg. The two mediums, Maria Orsic and Sigrun, attended. The main item on the agenda was the Aldebaran project. The mediums had received precise information about the habitable planets around the sun of Aldebaran, and one began to plan a trip there. <coughs> At a January 22, 1944 meeting between Hitler, Himmler, Kunkel of the Vril Society, and Dr. Schumann, this project was discussed. It was planned to send the Vril 7 large-capacity craft through a dimension channel independent of the speed of light to Aldebaran. According to Rathhofer, 
A first test flight in the Dimension Channel took place in the winter of 1944. It barely missed disaster, for photographs show the Brill 7 after the flight looking as if it had been flying for a hundred years. The outer skin was looking aged and was damaged in several places. On February 14, 1944, the supersonic helicopter constructed by Schriever and Habermall under the V-7 project that was equipped with 12 turbo units BMW 028 was flown by the test pilot Joachim Rolake at Pinamund. The vertical rate of ascent was 800 meters per minute. It reached a height of 24,200 meters and in horizontal flight a speed of 2,200 kilometers per hour. It could also be driven with unconventional energy. But the helicopter never saw action since Pinamund was bombed in 1944 and the subsequent move to Prague didn't work out either because the Americans and the Russians occupied Prague before the flying machines were ready again. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So some of this stuff you have to take with a grain of salt. But however, keep in mind, this Schriever Habermall project, this is a known commodity. This is historically uh, a proven thing. They, they did develop these flying disks, and they're calling this, this flying helicopter. This was using conventional technologies, right? Things that we would consider conventional technologies that we understand. So they built a flying disc craft that was much like a helicopter at Pinamund. And uh, that's what this was talking about that was able to achieve uh, these these various uh, rates of speed and altitude. Uh, so think about that. So let's read on here. In the secret archives of the SS and the British and the Americans discovered during the occupation of Germany at the beginning of 1945, photographs of the Hanabu 2 and the Vril 1 crafts, as well as of the Andromeda device. Let's see. That's all it says. Okay. <laughs> so I guess they, they found photographs. Uh, due to President Truman's decision in March 1946, the War Fleet Command of the U.S. gave permission to collect material of the German high-technology experiments. Under the Operation Paperclip, German scientists who had worked in secret were brought to the U.S. privately, among them Victor Schauberger and Werner von Braun. A short summary of the developments that were meant to be produced in series. The first project was led by Professor Dr. M. G. W. O. Schumann of the Technical University Munich. Under his guidance, 17 disc-shaped flying machines with a diameter of 11.5 meters were built, the so-called Vril-1 Jaeger, Vril-1 fighters, that made 84 test flights. At least one Vril-7 and one Vril-7 large-capacity craft apparently started from Brandenburg after the whole test area had been blown up towards Aldebaran with some of the Vril scientists and Vril Lodge members. Gonna pause there. Like I said, folks, some of this stuff you have to take with a grain of salt, right? Uh, because this is coming from a Vril-based website, okay? So these are people within secret society groups that are making these claims that uh, they developed these craft, and it, it looks like, according to them, that they actually... Uh, flew one of these real sevens to Aldebaran uh, with some of the real scientists and lodge members on board. That's what they're claiming here, right? Uh, but they're also making some, uh, you know, claims here as far as, uh, you know, different types of test flights and stuff like that, numbers of, of craft and test flights and stuff like that going on, which seems like pretty specific data. So is there some truth to this? 
maybe, right? Because we can see that uh, there is a kind of line of succession uh, to this information and the development of some of these projects. But uh, let's continue on. The second project was run by the SSW Development Group. Until the beginning of 1945, they had three different sizes of bell-shaped space gyros built. The Hanabu 1, 25 meters diameter, two machines built that made 52 test flights with a speed calculated to be 4,800 kilometers per hour. The Hanabu 2, a 32 meter diameter, seven machines built that made 106 test flights with a speed calculated to be 6,000 kilometers per hour. The Hanabu 2 was already planned for series production. Tenders were asked from the Dornier and Junkers aircraft manufacturers, and at the end of March 1945, the decision was made in favor of Dornier. The official name for the heavy craft was to be the Dostra, the Dornier Stratospheric Craft. So uh, they came up with an official name for this, uh, you know, from Dornier, uh, the developer. So they were supposedly supposed to mass-produce these and call them the Dostra. The Hanabu 3, 71 meter diameter, only one machine built that made at least 19 test flights with a calculated speed of 7,000 kilometers per hour. The Andromeda device existed on the drawing board. It was 139 meters long and had hangars for one Hanabu 2, two Vril 1s, and two Vril 2s. So... We see uh, here there's some diagrams and stuff like that. And there's documents here, it says, showing that the Vril 7 large capacity craft was used for secret still earthbound missions after it was finished and test flown by the end of 1944. A landing at the Monsee in the Schalkama Group in Austria with dives to test the pressure resistance of the hull. Uh, probably in March and April 1945, the Vril 7 was stationed in the Alpenfestung, the Alpine Forest, for security and strategic reasons from whence it flew to Spain to get important personalities who had fled there safely to South America and New Schwabenland to the secret bases erected during the war. And uh, then there's also diagrams of this Andromeda craft here. From the fascinating, this fascinating list of craft and their statistics and information coming from the 1989 document dump in Britain that included all of the diagrams that we are seeing, we can gather that at the end of the war, there were, and now here, here's where the rubber meets the road. <coughs> this is what's claimed to have existed, right? These are what is said uh, to have existed. There were allegedly 17 of real Jaeger 1 craft, which were the real fighters with, uh, you know, a seated crew of one. Uh, there were two real 7s uh, with an unknown amount of crew. Two Hanabu 1s. Seven Hanabu 2s. The Hanabu 2 seated nine people, crew members, and can hold up to 20 people. One Hanabu 3. Uh, the Hanabu 3 seated 32 people. And allegedly two of the Andromeda craft or device were developed. So this is what's claimed. This is claimed to be the number of these devices, these ships that were built, right? So we have 17 Vril 1s, 2 Vril 7s, 2 Hanabu 1s, 7 Hanabu 2s, 1 Hanabu 3, and 2 of the alleged Andromeda craft, which are the cylindrical-shaped craft. Uh, so this is what uh, is claimed to have been developed here. So let's read on here. Uh, and we're almost finished, folks. We'll wrap up here very soon. I just wanted to touch upon uh, some of these ideas because uh, 
I find it fascinating, really. <coughs> this is always a subject that's interested me, right? So I see a developmental line, a developmental lineage here of man-made uh, disc-shaped craft and UFO-type craft, right? So we see that uh, this has been going on for a long time, that uh, many of these types of concepts have been explored for a long time, and people took them seriously. And these document dumps that came out are kind of uh, showing some evidence that uh, maybe there's something to this. Like I said, some of this you have to take with a grain of salt, but uh, I especially find a lot of these photographs that came from this document dump very compelling because it was so much harder to uh, fake these kinds of photographs back then, right? And we're talking this document dump that much of it came out uh, with much of these photos in 1989, right? And think back, many of these, these photos were examined and were shown to, uh, you know, be from the time period of the 1940s and 1950s and, and times like that when they're claimed to be from. Uh, so when you look at these... <clears throat> it's much more difficult to fake these types of photographs in the modern era. Well, it was then than it is in the modern era, we should say. Uh, so, with that being the case, you know, I, I find the photographic evidence compelling, and I find, uh, you know, some of the patents and uh, designs and diagrams and stuff like that compelling as well. Uh, so, you know, you could see, and when you follow the line of thought and uh, look at the more uh, well-known types of uh, development that had gone on historically that can be proven. Things like the, the Schriever Meath discs and the, uh, you know, all of these things that have been built, the, the Schauberger work, all of this stuff are known commodities, right? Then you could understand that uh, maybe there's, there's something more that goes along with this. And we see a lot of the evidence uh, pointing to the fact that, uh, yes, there are unknown things that have been spotted, um, you know, especially going back to the classic UFO flaps of the 1950s, especially like 1952, and different times like that. Uh, and, you know, many of the, the descriptions given match these to a T, don't they? Uh, so, you know, it's a, a much more... Um, much more... Uh, feasible scenario that these are man-made craft so so to say rather than say something extraterrestrial that we're seeing when you line up the timeline for this stuff with that so anyway let's read on and we're almost finished here we'll wrap up here very soon the andromeda craft called a device in the real material on the internet was said to be a 139 meter long tubular craft that according to plans released held one hanabu two and two real craft the above text says that there were four real craft in the Andromeda mothership, so there is a discrepancy here. We know that the crew of a Hanabu 2 was up to nine people, and then it could ultimately hold 20 people, but we do not know what the crew of the Andromeda craft would be. We might surmise by calculating in this way. A crew of nine for the Hanabu 2, and another four crew members for the smaller real craft. If there was another 20 possible crew members, we get a figure of 33 crew members. So, that's an interesting fact in and of itself, because they love their double-digit numbers, don't they? Numbers like 33, 22, uh, all of these things are important to secret society groups. So, you know, maybe this is 
uh, you know, just something encoded, or maybe there's more to it than that. Who knows? Uh, this is an interesting number for a secret society of Teutonic Knights who believed that they were fighting a world war against an English-French Masonic society who believed that they were descended from the Knights Templar. The Templars, after their suppression, founded the first modern banks and courts at the Old Bailey in London's Old City. The underground stop here is Temple, and the original circular Temple Church in London can be found here as well. The Teutonic Knights were a third branch of the Crusaders, with the Knights of St. John and the Knights Templar being the other two branches. The Nazi SS fancied themselves as the reincarnations of the Teutonic Knights of Old, a group that was allied with the British, French, and Templars, but ultimately opposed to the Russians and other Slavic forces. Gonna pause there. This is an interesting bit of fact that's been included here by David Hatcher Childress. It was an important concept, right? This is an important concept to keep in mind uh, here because it always falls back to a lot of these esoteric lines of thought. And these people that uh, control many of these projects, they do see themselves as being, uh, you know, special in many ways. They see themselves as having the divine right to do this stuff and to be the ones, the arbiters of these types of technologies, per se. Uh, so let's continue on here, like I said, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, wrap it up here very soon. In many ways, World War II was about secret societies fighting for control of the world in the 1930s and 1940s. There was still time for the Germans and Japanese and their allies to grab more control of the world, and the Thule Society, the Vril Society, and the SS all preached the message of an expansive Germany, a Germany that was all over the world, like the British Empire. But their nemesis was the British Empire, a Masonic Templar establishment that had its own secret societies. It is important to remember that secret societies like the Masons, Knights of Columbus, and many others were all the rage until television came along in the 1940s and 50s. The British were actually seen by Hess and other members of the Thule Society as allies, not enemies. However, Churchill and the British military would, negotiate on, would not negotiate on any terms with Hitler's regime. We will see that uh, Hitler, the Nazis, and the SS did not consider Britain, France, and the West as their enemies, merely as their adversaries. The real goal of the Germans was to push eastward into Russia and the Ukraine, and to capture the oil fields at Baku in Azerbaijan. We will discuss this later in the book, he says here, Germany did not have any oil fields of its own and was constantly looking for sources of energy. This is why the electrical craft predicted by Nikola Tesla were of such interest to the Germans, they needed aircraft and other equipment that did not use petroleum products as their main source of power. Thus, the intensified research into electric spacecraft. Tesla had provided the platform, and the Germans used their money and technology to build the first of what could be described as Tesla craft. And we're going to wrap it up right there, folks. So, essentially... These ideas were derived from Tesla's patents, Tesla's ideas. Uh, Tesla developed a machine he called the Fliver. Okay, uh, This was uh, something that he had on the drawing board. I don't know if he ever actually built or tested this device. Uh, but essentially, it was just a flying machine. 
And that's all it did. It was a, a box. It was, you know, a tubular-shaped device that was able to uh, levitate and fly through the air without any moving parts using only electricity and the electrical field. This is something that, uh, you know, uh, Tesla was alleged to have been working on. It's something he talked about, actually, in uh, different uh, different publications. I have an older magazine uh, that... Uh, was from i think 1917 or 18 something like that where he's actually talking about this device and how it will operate with no moving parts and it will fly without uh, you know any uh, type of uh, need for uh, something as archaic as as lift and propulsion in in the sense of an airplane uh, so he was talking about something like this so tesla came up with the ideas and the technologies and experimented with many of these things. And it looks to me like this uh, clear line of succession uh, through, you know, the 1920s into the 1930s and on forward by some various scientists looking into the electrical theory of things had found a way to perhaps build a propulsion device that works in an electrogravitic type fashion and we see the echoes of this. And uh, as we've discussed in the past, by looking at the works of Dr. T. Townsend Brown and his project Winterhaven, we see that there, there might be some legs to this idea. So we also see that uh, perhaps there's legs to the Nazi saucer idea, especially as it pertains to, uh, you know, these special uh, types of saucers that we were alluding to here as we're talking. Um, the Hanabu craft, the Vril craft, the Andromeda craft, all these things were alleged to have been developed and uh, you know we do have these documents and these photographs to back up that that might be the case that these things were real devices that really worked now did they fly to space i highly doubt it but did they fly probably uh, and we have the more conventional type saucer craft that are historically documented and provable that the nazis had developed so, you know, was this a red herring thrown out there to throw people off the trail of the, the real developments uh, in the electrogravitic technologies? Perhaps, because we see something similar went on here in the U.S. and Canada in later decades, in the 1960s. Uh, Canada, actually using some of the ideas, and, and, and I think it was either Meath or Schriever, I think it was Schriever, uh, from the, the Nazi camp here, working on the, the Nazi discs, was involved in this project uh, with a company called Avro in Canada that developed uh, what they called the Avro car uh, that they put out there for public consumption. And they showed this awkward-looking uh, flying disc thing that was based upon hovercraft-type technology that was really wonky-looking. And they put that out there for the public and saying, yes, this is, this is what, uh, you know, the... We tried developing these flying discs, and this is as good as we could do, and, and this kind of thing. So they put that out there as public misinformation to lead people off the trail, when in reality, this Avro company was developing a project called Project Silverbug, uh, which was a Mach 3 flying disc, okay? A, a flying disc uh, purported to be able to travel at speeds up to Mach 3. Uh, so this is a real project, and there were different uh, developments of this project, Silverbug. And there were other uh, Avro projects. Uh, one is actually shaped um, much like, uh, kind of like a, a half disc with a flat back end, uh, which looks much like some of the early developments from Schriever uh, in the, the Nazi discs, 
right? Uh, so you can see the connections here, and he was alleged to have worked with Avro on some of these designs. And not coincidentally, this is also the same shape that we see in a photograph uh, from the famous Roswell event. Okay, this is actually, uh, it's called the Rhodes Photograph. Uh, it was published in the Roswell uh, local paper on July 9th, 1947. And uh, it shows this, this strange-looking uh, black uh, partial disc-shaped device with a, a flat backside and a white light in the center. And this is what this, it shows. It was published, actually, in the newspaper. And this is said to uh, be, by some researchers, what the, the actual crash at Roswell was, this device. And it looks just like uh, a later development from this Avro company. Uh, you know, based upon the, the Schriever models uh, from the Nazis. So with that being the case, and I think that uh, that picture is actually circulating here in the uh, slideshow, if you, if you watch for it. It should be coming up here soon on the screen. So watch for that, uh, that picture, and you'll see what I'm talking about with this Rhodes photograph. So there's this connection here uh, that perhaps all of these different things were of more earthly origins than what uh, you know the government story would have you to believe and it, it's l largely been acknowledged by uh, the intelligence groups that they they use this misinformation and disinformation about extraterrestrial nature of craft like this to lead people astray they've they've weaponized it right this gives them a perfect cover doesn't it, it gives them plausible deniability no it's not anything we're working on we don't know what it is uh, it might be extraterrestrial uh, it keeps people off the trail. That's what it's designed to do. But uh, you can see there's a, a clear delineation of development from Tesla on forward through the 1920s and 30s uh, with the developments from uh, guys like T. Townsend Brown and several others, uh, Schriever, Meath, uh, Schauberger. All of these guys were allegedly developing these levitation technologies. So uh, that being the case, uh, who's to say, right? And like I said, some of this stuff you have to take with a grain of salt because they, you know, if there is some truth in the mix here, it's probably laced with a lot of heavy disinformation as well. So, you know, any of these stories of them flying these disc craft or uh, Andromeda cylindrical shaped craft off to Aldebaran uh, to meet the aliens or whatever, this is probably disingenuous. But I, I would suspect that something was developed with these technologies by the Nazis. And uh, what it is exactly, who could say for sure? But I do think there's something to the field of electrogravitics, which went deep black in the late 1950s. Uh, this was something that was a known commodity in the public sector in many of the, the science magazines and uh, publications of the time. It's something that was being discussed and talked about openly in the 1950s. But like I said, it went deep black in 1957 or 58 uh, with the advent and the uh, rise of NASA. And uh, when uh, Dr. T. Townsend Brown went to the Naval Department with his Project Winter Haven proposal, that's when everything went underground. When they, I think it is when the military realized that, hey, people are going to be catching on to this soon you have uh, these these private uh, scientists and stuff like that like uh, townsend brown who figured out how a lot of this stuff works and uh, we're really onto something with this and you have uh, 
uh, probably these Nazi scientists that were working in these projects, these real society, Thule society scientists working on these uh, different projects separately uh, were coming up with some of the same types of technologies. So uh, I think this was a real eye-opening thing for uh, the military-industrial complex when uh, Townsend Brown, who, by the way, was one of the main contractors with the military, this guy was military through and through, when he independently developed some of these technologies, they probably figured, you know what, uh, there's a lot of smart people out there. We need to keep this under wraps. Let's uh, let's make this uh, disappear out of the public sight because they're they're getting close to developing this. Uh, so the, you know the, the military has to keep tabs on this, and I think these technologies still exist to this day and are probably much more advanced now than they were back then. Uh, but uh, they're hidden within special access programs and, uh, you know, within the auspices of the black budget of the military-industrial complex. And I don't think they're coming to light for the public consumption anytime soon because this involves free energy of sorts, right? The development of free energy technologies, they can't have that. That would cause a catastrophic catastrophic collapse of society as we know it if they were to release these free energy technologies uh, to the public. If people found out about this, <laughs> there would be hell to pay, right? Because we're, we're largely based upon these petroleum economies for the most part. Uh, and that's what it's all about. It's always the, these same people. This is how they make their fortune and maintain their control of this place is through the use of these money systems that are generated from petroleum-based products and, and things of that nature. Uh, that's why, you know, gas prices right now are such a huge thing, right? Because we need it in order for everything to function, because these are the technologies that have been mainstreamed and given to the public. Now, if they were to introduce free energy devices that could develop power for you uh, without consuming any types of fossil fuels or anything like that, all you got to do is plug this device into your house and turn it on, and it'll provide you with free energy for eternity. <laughs> you, you know, um, this is something they can't have going on. It would crash society as we know it. And many of these uh, types of electrogravitic craft ideas and stuff like that are based upon the same types of technologies, because this also leads to the thought process that uh, they would have to admit that... Uh, the model of physics that they've been telling us and teaching us for the past several decades is totally wrong and they need to go back uh, to the ether model of physics and in so doing this would be another hugely problematic thing uh, for the power structure or the powers that be uh, so at the end of the day why would they keep these technologies hidden well that's precisely why so that these people who run things in this place could maintain control here. Because if you let a cat like this out of the bag, then, uh, you know, it's, it's world-shaking, isn't it? Your average person could have so much more potentiality to do the things they want and wouldn't be dependent upon, uh, you know, this small elite group to run things, would they? If, if we had access to all kinds of free energy? <laughs> anyway, that's... That's the bottom line here. Uh, it's, it's about suppressing the idea of free energy and suppressing that these technologies exist because it could change the way the world operates. And although it could change the, the way the world operates for better, there's people in positions of power that don't want that because they want to maintain their control in this place. They want to maintain their level of power in this place. 
and they don't want to let go of that. So with that being said, I don't think it's likely that we'll see the uh, public revealing of these types of technologies anytime soon. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but I, I do think these technologies exist at some level or another. And, uh, you know, it's it's all a matter of time before uh, it truly gets figured out, right, here within the public sector. Because you could only keep something like this under wraps for so long before somebody in the the private world out here figures out how it works. And I think that there were some that have figured out how these things work and have, you know, been silenced about it in many different ways. So that being the case, you know, I, I always find this topic fascinating. And I didn't want to let the 75th anniversary of Roswell go by without discussing some type of UFO uh, type of uh, technology or type of uh, a program here. So I think this fills the bill nicely. And uh, I really enjoy looking into and delving into this this type of uh, research. This This is a field that I've always been interested in. UFOs, it's fascinated me. How do these things fly, right? Uh, I've seen a couple. I've, been, I've seen a couple UFOs in my lifetime. Inexplicable things. Things I could not explain. And uh, it, it doesn't align with, you know, the modern field of physics we're handed. Uh, so that being the case, I've always delved heavily into the, this subject and try to find everything that I possibly can relating to it. And I, I find some of this stuff very fascinating, especially when you go back to sources like Henry Stevens, who, uh, you know, actually explored these topics for decades and talked to very many people and went through and did the actual groundbreaking research into this stuff and talked to these people that allegedly worked on these projects and learned some things and was able to put information forward. Uh, so it's thanks to people like that that we have access to some of this information. So I just wanted to put that out there because I don't see an awful lot of people out there doing this type of show anymore. I don't know if I ever really have. I see people out there talking about UFOs. Well, you know, it might be aliens, it might be this, it might be that. But I don't see anybody actually going back and trying to look at the nuts and bolts of things in this type of a forum here, right? In this type of a format. I see people have written books about it, but nobody really goes on podcasts or anything like that and really talks uh, in this kind of a depth about these things or explores these ideas. So I, I just wanted to do so because I find it fascinating. So uh, if anybody has recommendations out there, if anybody that is talking about this type of stuff, uh, please let me know. Uh, but uh, I'm going to end it right here for tonight, folks. I think I've gone way over time uh, and it is a fascinating topic. So, uh, you know, I, I did enjoy uh, streaming this one. And uh, I'm just going to let it go right there. Everybody have a good night. We'll catch you next time. Have a good one.
Introducing the new home for free speech, Free World FM, the alternative to the alternative. Keep on talking in the free world. That's freeworld.fm. Coming soon.